From a studio high above the clouds of the Okanagan Valley, this is the Cannabis Podcast. Exploring the world of Canadian cannabis culture, one toke at a time. Now, here's your host and bud tender, Gary Johnston. And welcome back. Welcome back as our country starts to finally open up again. It's time for us to talk about getting high again. Welcome back to the Cannabis Podcast, your source of 30 minutes of cannabis-packed information, a diversity of topics coming your way today. I discovered one of the best-named websites out there, MrStinky'sGreenGarden.com. Now, how can you not like a website with that name? We're going to visit MrStinky'sGreenGarden.com because they have a discussion about cannabis resin that we'll get into in a little bit. I'm also going to check out a story from TheStar.com on the plunging price of legal cannabis in Ontario. Their words, not mine. There is a somewhat concerning story we're going to talk about as well about the inaccuracy of THC levels in legal weed. And then right after that, we're going to tuck into another story that puts to rest the urban legend of cannabis laced with fentanyl in the black market. And on a shortened cultivar corner, we're going to talk about an increasingly popular product from Redican. And then I'm going to finish up with the story I promised you last time, the first time I ever smoked a joint. All of that and more is coming your way on episode 47 of the Cannabis Podcast. All right, so let's take that first stop at Mr. Stinky's Green Garden. I, I just love the way that sounds. <laughs> and Mr. Stinky is talking about cannabis resin. We all know cannabis resin and hold it very dearly. That gooey, almost glue-like quality of some top-shelf examples of cannabis is the result of a substance called resin. Resin, while a single component of cannabis, is comprised of many medical molecules, including the most important cannabinoids and terpenes. Cannabinoids, of course, are the chemical compounds that are responsible for the psychoactive effect and much of the plant's medical efficacy. Terpenes are equally medicinal, but are also responsible for the infamous and sometimes intense odor of cannabis. Now, the most famous molecule in cannabis, tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, is a cannabinoid. Cannabidiol, CBD, is another example of a medicinal cannabinoid, albeit one that doesn't deliver a euphoric high. Terpenes like cannabinoids do everything from fight cancer to alleviate depression to reduce or eliminate seizures in epileptic children. Examples include myrcene, which smells musky and is the most common terpene in cannabis, limonene, which conveys an aroma of citrus, and pinene, which smells, let's see now, like a walk through a pine forest. There's more to the story of cannabis resin, however. Resin is produced by special, nearly microscopic secretory glands on the flowers and sugar leaves of the plant called trichomes. These glands also appear on the fan leaves, stalk, and branches of the plant, but in far fewer numbers. There are actually six different varieties of trichomes, all of which serve slightly different functions. The largest of these siblings, and thus the type that produces the most cannabinoids and terpenes, is the capitate stalked variety. At 50 to 100 millimeters wide, it is the biggest and most industrious of the trichomes. In cannabis cultivation, growers know their plants are near harvest when the trichomes begin to transition from clear to a cloudy, almost milky, light red or orange. And we've talked about this many times on the Cannabis Podcast. The small size of trichomes means that such inspections require a jeweler's loop or even a microscope. Now, from an evolutionary perspective, botanists believe that resin was developed by the, by the cannabis plant as a defense mechanism against insects and animals. Many plants use their terpenes and such to attract the uh, pollinators, but because cannabis is wind-pollinated, the terpenes are in fact a defense mechanism. The bitter taste and potent aroma of resin protect the precious flowers of the plant, 
but you're hoping to find some pollen that floats by in order to become inseminated and propagate the species before being eaten by a pest. Now, from the perspective of humans, resin blocks UV sunlight, helping protect the delicate terpenes and cannabinoids contained within them so they can do things like shrink cancerous tumors and lift depression in patients. So there's an example or a discussion on cannabis resin from Mr. Stinky's GreenGarden.com. A lot of those things we've covered off before, the idea of the terpenes and watching those as we come to harvest, as many of you I'm sure are doing. Well, perhaps not coming to harvest yet, but hopefully you've got your four plants in the, gar in the ground and they are growing nicely for you. So thank you, Mr. Stinky, for giving us a bit more of discussion about cannabis resin. Now, this may come as a bit of a surprise to many. Apparently, prices are coming down in Ontario, at least according to a story from The Star. The headline says cannabis price plunged in 2019. It almost matches the illegal price, says Ontario Cannabis Store. The Ontario Cannabis Store says that the median price of dried flour dropped 25% in its first full year of operation since legalization in a bid to compete with the illegal market. Now, the illegal price was $8.23 per gram, compared with $8.56 at the OSC.ca and $10.84 at retail stores. Ontario consumers spent $385 million for 35 million grams of cannabis online and at retail stores over the 12 months which ended March 31st, even as supply was constrained in the first six months. More than 81% of the spending was done at retail stores, whose numbers increased to 53 in the fourth quarter from 22 a year earlier. There are now 87 stores operating in the province. And in fact, I'm going to take a bit of a diversion right now, since we just started talking about retail stores in the middle of this story, is appropriate, because that's one other thing I wanted to mention. There is a fellow that I follow on Twitter who was talking about the differing numbers of retail stores across the country. So his Twitter handle is at ITSDGC, David George Cash. And David has been keeping track of the retail stores. I kind of lost interest in it because it was so slow moving in BC for so long. It became a little redundant to check every week to find out that there were no more released. Here are the current numbers for Canada. 937 across the country. In BC, 194. And they say 72 are coming soon. <laughs> Let's examine that phrase coming soon, shall we? Alberta, 468. By far, Alberta has the most stores of any province in our country, almost almost four times as much as BC. I guess three times as much as BC. Wow. Saskatchewan, 45 stores. Manitoba, 30. Ontario, 87. And I like this, 413 apparently in progress. <laughs> Quebec has 42 stores. Nova Scotia, 12. New Brunswick, 20. PEI, 4. Newfoundland, 25, Yukon, 5, and the Northwest Territories, 5. So thanks, David, for keeping track of the retail outlets across the country. And we'll see if those numbers continue to increase and whether those 72 in BC are actually coming soon. And those 413 in progress in Ontario, whether they actually turn into fruition or not. <laughs> so let's get back to the story where we were talking about prices, now that we've talked about those retail stores. Dried flour made up 79% of sales by volume and generated nearly $275 million for 27.8 million grams. Pre-rolled was second most popular, generating $42.6 million. Oils third at $26 million. Vapes followed at $14.8 million, million and capsules at $11.3 million. Consumers spent an average of $90.12 per order with the average order being 9 grams 
at the Ontario Cannabis Store website. Nine grams seems like an odd order number to me. Like a quarter and an eighth plus a, a, a weird. Each retail store sold an average of 3,100 grams per day, generating $25,000 in sales. And I've noticed myself that the prices are coming down. I mean, there are ounces available on the legal market now for $119, in some cases a little less than that. I've seen them between $119 and $149, depending on what particular strains we're talking about. So it's getting there. I mean, it's not down to the $100 ounces that many people would were getting and perhaps still are getting on the black market. But the prices are coming down, and I think we have to recognize that, that there has been some adjustment. Certainly the quality of what we're getting in the legal world is improving immensely. So I guess all things considered, we have to say that things are getting better and maybe they're right. Maybe the prices will continue to go down as we move through this wacky pandemic and post-pandemic time. Wouldn't that be a nice outcome that suddenly our cannabis was way cheaper? From the cannabis-infused studio in the clouds, this is the Cannabis Podcast. Now, this story is a little concerning, frankly, because it talks about the possible inaccuracy of faulty THC dosages. (laughs) The story is from the Calgary Herald. Health Canada has been flagging legal cannabis products containing incorrect amounts of THC content, up to five times more of the ingredient than advertised. Now, that could be a real challenge for someone, picking up some edibles that are five times stronger. Since recreational legalization took effect in October of 2018, the federal agency has ordered 15 recalls of products due to labeling errors in the actual levels of THC and CBD present. Now, in one instance, a package of pre-rolled cannabis cigarettes was determined to have five times the THC content posted. Five times! Other instances had THC levels below that listed. The federal cannabis regulations require licensed holders to investigate complaints received about the quality of cannabis and, if necessary, to take corrective measures. Health Canada spokeswoman Tammy Jarbeau said in an email, In the cases where THC or CBD content was improperly labeled, Federal license holders have chosen to voluntarily recall their product. Now, most of those recalls were of dried flour, although some involved cannabis oil. One recall happened in February of 2019, and it said that caps that were supposed to contain non-psychoactive CBD oil may contain THC sativa caps. But the federal regulator said it's generally satisfied with the industry performance. Generally, the cannabis industry has a high overall compliance rate with the Cannabis Act and its regulations, and any packaging or labeling errors related to THC or CBD content have been limited relative to the overall industry sales. Even so, a spokesperson for Alberta-based licensed producer Aurora Cannabis said Health Canada has recently ordered changes to product labeling related to potency. One Calgary chocolatier who's preparing to market cannabis edibles said regulators have told him of THC level errors in such products. It's something Todd Pringle said he's determined to avoid by incorporating his own testing system at his production facility in the city's northeast, while other producers contract out that task. It's something I never, ever want to see come up because it'll turn people off edibles and a black mark on the industry, said Pringle, CEO of Wabi Sabi Brands. He said the company first tests the potency of the cannabis oil infused into its chocolate, then screens its sweets twice more using a $120,000 device. 
The key to that is proper mixing, making sure it's homogenized, which can be, of course, a challenge in the viscosity of cannabis oil, said Pringle. Whether it's THC or CBD, that stability is really hard to achieve, he said. Health Canada says its regulations generally allow for a 15% variability in THC or CBD levels, either above or below the labeled amount. But that can rise to 25% for lower THC content products. Canadian producers had the advantage of learning from U.S. counterparts that went before them in states such as Colorado, which embraced legalization in 2014, said Denver-based cannabis industry consultant Dan Rowland. In the old days, you could shop around for a test until you got the result you needed, said Roland, who's worked with Canadian producers and retailers. Our margins of error of what was acceptable was huge. That has since evolved considerably in the U.S. and was never the case in Canada, which has been governed by more stringent national regulations. For one, Canada's limit of 10 milligrams of THC for edible packages is far lower than those in the States. We talked about that last episode. Any recalls or production labeling errors in Canada, said Roland, are par for the course for a relatively immature market. Maintaining proper THC and CBD levels in cannabis-infused products and beverages, he said, is proving a challenge. It's why, with the drinks, you're seeing lots of marketing delays, said Roland. Jarbo said it's up to licensed producers to rectify quality complaints from the public, but that any follow-up action to complaints will be consistent with Health Canada's compliance and enforcement policies and procedures. So there you go. Next time you pick up some cannabis and you think that the THC levels may be off from what you're experiencing, perhaps they actually are. Now, I had an interesting start to this day. This is the first of my two days off. My weekend, in fact, which is not actually happening on the weekend, but I'm getting used to that. It's just a blast. I'm having a blast back at work. It's fun serving selling cannabis again, getting those people exactly what they're after and, and having lots of discussions about cannabis throughout the day. But the day started out rather well today. It started with a rather enjoyable round of golf, a round of golf that was suitably inspired by some daily special sativa on holes one through three. And then we moved to the product I'm going to be talking about uh, with a little bit of a cultivar corner, uh, on holes uh, four, five, six. And then we kind of mixed them up on seven, eight, and nine. <laughs> I had a blast. And it was funny as I'm walking around this course, this this gorgeous expanse of green overlooking the beautiful Okanagan Valley. And I just couldn't help but say to myself as I'm walking down this fairway with this big grin on my face, I absolutely love being high. I do. I, I'll admit it. <laughs> I absolutely love when I get stoned. That that initial euphoria every single time just makes me feel, wow, I really love this. And I suspect you do too, because that's why you're along for this ride. And I appreciate you coming along for the ride. So now let's move on to another of our stories for today. And this is one that I've always struggled with. Now, of course, the, the focus of what we're doing here on the Cannabis Podcast has been from day one to talk about the legal cannabis market because it's legalized, the excitement that that involves, and that's where I encourage almost everybody to get their cannabis. It's where I'm buying the majority of my stuff these days. But, of course, there is still the block market that exists. We get reminded of it every single day. And there's still a lot of people who are, who are using that as their source of cannabis. The one frustrating thing that I have experienced over the last few years is this constant 
rumor, uh, you know, one of these conspiracy theories that says that cannabis on the street is being laced with fentanyl and that, that those who are smoking it need to be concerned and aware of that. Well, anybody who has been around the cannabis industry for as long as any of us have been knows that there's no economic sense for that sentence. <laughs> there's no economic advantage for anyone to even consider lacing cannabis with fentanyl. They have been bogus stories right from day one. And I'm really glad that Lyft & Co., which is where we're picking up this story today, has decided to examine that myth. Here's a look at the history of the media's favorite marijuana misinformation. It is a rare thing to be able to say you witnessed the birth of a legend, let alone an urban legend, but that is what we're witnessing with fentanyl-laced cannabis. Like evolution itself, there are dead ends, there is also re-emergence. Now, one possible birthplace of this myth is CTV News in Calgary. It was November 2014. They published a simple story about traffic stops leading to seizures of cannabis and fentanyl. The story itself clarifies that it was two separate stops, one which yielded cannabis and the other fentanyl. The headline, however, read, Marijuana and Fentanyl Seized. It was perhaps this that led the Vancouver Police Department to issue a statement in March of 2015, which claimed fentanyl-laced marijuana, heroin, oxycodone, and other party drugs have resulted in the deaths of many occasional drug users. Not only is cannabis included, it's listed first. In fact, Constable Sandra Glendinning insisted police are seeing fentanyl in marijuana at a news conference the very next day, promoting a new campaign called, ironically, knowyoursource.ca. The story was reported in numerous outlets. By June 2015, the fentanyl crisis, which McLean's traces back to 2002 in Canada, was finally getting some attention, but so was Constable Glendinning's. In August, Dr. Mark Lishishin, a health officer with Vancouver Coastal Health, seems to be the first official to state publicly that fentanyl has not been found in cannabis. This didn't stop others from quoting the original story over the next year, including a North Dakota police force in July and a sitting B.C. Premier in November. B.C. Premier Christy Clark was no stranger to election drama. From losing her own riding and pulling off a come-from-behind victory for her incumbent party last time, to effectively splitting the vote to win re-election and still not getting to form government. One early sign that things weren't going so smoothly can be seen in November of 2016. At a press conference in Ottawa, Premier Clark repeated the claim, not from the earlier VPD release that fentanyl had been found in cannabis, but one put out by the Masset RCMP the week before. The next day, the Ministry of Health, Vancouver Coastal Health, the B.C. Coroner's Service, the Provincial RCMP Headquarters, and the Vancouver Police all stated they had no evidence to support the claim. Even the Masset RCMP clarified, saying that their source was community concerns. Still, in February of this year, Valmont RCMP officer Chris Gallant again hinted they had reason to believe cannabis could be laced with fentanyl. This pattern emerged again this week in Ohio. In June, Hamilton County Coroner Lakshmi Samarako and U.S. Senator Rob Portman again made the claim. Quick reporting uncovered that neither Hamilton County or neighboring Cuyahoga County medical examiners had reported any such cases. Local police officers stated on record they had no evidence of any such cases. As for the DEA, they also said there was no evidence, but there could be. In June 2017, the myth raised its head once again in Canada, with a paper in Cornwall, Ontario, running a story that implied cannabis was laced with fentanyl 
though it noted this was unconfirmed by police. So, please, don't be one to spread that nasty rumor again. It just kills me. I mean, we do, we, we do so much to work against stigma in legalization of cannabis. And then we have these other issues that crop up all the time, and it just frustrates the hell out of me, to be perfectly blunt. <laughs> so please, don't spread any of those silly rumors yourself. THC, CBD, terpene profiles, what's in me? Oh, please explain to me. Cultivar Corner, Cultivar Corner, oh yeah. All right, a rather shortened and different edition of Cultivar Corner today. I'm not actually going to be imbibing because I already smoked them. (laughs) I'm being honest. The product that I want to talk to you about is one that is really becoming really popular. We sell an awful lot of them in our store, and I know a lot of stores are selling them, and they're selling out very fast. It's a product from Redican. And Redican has kind of figured out that there's a lot of people out there, maybe they're former smokers of cigarettes, maybe they're not, maybe they just have always been intrigued by those little you know, kid packages of cigarette, those, those gum things that we used to get. Anyways, they have come out with essentially a, an eighth, three and a half to four grams of cannabis that is wrapped up rather nicely in a little tiny, I'll use a cigarette package for lack of a better term, And inside that cigarette package or inside that joint package are 10 equally diverse, about 0.35 gram joints, little pinners with filters on the end. And they smoke really well. And you know what I discovered? They are perfect for a round of golf. (laughs) As I mentioned, I started out my day doing that round of golf and it was Reddy's Cold Creek Kush that was giving me the buzz as I went around the course. Really a nice smoke and perfectly sized. For someone like myself, who has a certain level of tolerance, I would basically smoke about half of one of these on one hole, move to the next hole, finish that up, and over the course of a few rounds of golf, my 10 readies kind of disappeared. So that's why I have none left to actually sample. But I did want to recommend the product. I recommend that it's something that you should take a peek at because it's a pretty good value and it's a pretty good smoke. And in fact, it's also a pretty darn good high. And now to what I had promised last week, last episode. Actually, I've probably been teasing about it for a while. And this was to look back in my past. And what I remembered was the first time I ever smoked a joint. It was in Vancouver. Uh, I was living in the interior of BC at the time. But my one of my older brothers was going to UBC. I feel I need a little motivation to carry on with the story. So he was going to UBC. This was in 1969. And I remember that because I was heading down to Vancouver to see Creedence Clearwater Revival. They were playing at the Coliseum on the weekend that this travel took place. When I met up with my brother, he was living in residence at UBC. And my very first exposure to seeing a cannabis cigarette or joint. Why did I call it a cigarette? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe I'm just too high. The first time I saw a circle of people gathered on a lawn, passing this little white stick around with puffs of smoke coming out of their mouths as they finished it, was my first exposure, literally, to cannabis. 
I sat down in the circle, and as it went by me, I was still not not quite sure what it was, so I just passed it on. Um, went, we sat there for you know probably a little while while everybody was finishing that, and then my brother and I took off. So he was now moving away from the residence for the weekend. He was going to live at or stay at his girlfriend's place, and she had a she lived out in Burnaby. Her father was a plastic surgeon, I believe, and her and her brother were there, as was my brother. And this was my second exposure to cannabis on this very same trip. From Burnaby, I left with her brother. I can't even remember his name. Uh, Obviously, it's not an important detail to the story. But we drove from Burnaby back into Vancouver. And at that time, 1969, that was the time when 4th Avenue was a tremendous competitive marketplace for cannabis and other goodies. I remember driving with this guy, and, and again, I was still pretty, you know, naive about all this. He turned a corner off of 4th Avenue onto one of these side streets. Cannot remember which one. I'm kind of glad I don't, because I'd go back to see. <laughs> and as he did, I, I swear there was three or four people who came out from the various alleys, all offering various goods. And he picked up, uh, I think it was a lid. That, that's what they were calling it back then. It was a lid of pot, which was about 15 bucks, something like that. <laughs> and off we went. So two exposures to this cannabis over the course of one day. And this was all new to me. And we went back to, to her house in Burnaby. And they were now heading off to some kind of uh, event, going to a movie or whatever it was. They left. I saw where my brother had placed this lid of cannabis in his suitcase and his papers. And I decided... I was going to investigate this. I had no instructions, no YouTube didn't exist back then, so I couldn't search for it on YouTube, couldn't say how to roll a joint or, or any of that stuff. I had to figure it out by myself. I broke it up with my fingers. I can't honestly remember what the pot was like. <laughs> that was way, way long ago. But I do remember the process of trying to get this into some kind of a level situation across this rolling paper. And I think I probably broke three or four papers as I was trying to roll up my first doobie. (laughs) I finally did, however. Finally got it done, found a lighter, and realized that I should probably go outside since this was inside this, as I say, this plastic plastic surgeon's house. (laughs) So I did. Went out in the backyard. I found a lighter and then did this. (sighs) Although I probably didn't do it quite so elegantly uh, or with such... uh, expertise as I have developed over the years. <laughs> in fact, that first one uh, sent me coffin and it kept me coughing for a little bit, but I kept at it. And much like happens to me now, as I had been smoking a joint, suddenly that euphoric high came across me and I had that first hint of my happy eyes, that first hint of how good it felt to just get stoned. And here's the other beauty of where I was at that at that moment. The surgeon's house that I was staying in, he had a very expansive stereo system and a pretty good record collection as well. So I then proceeded to take my first high, sit in this really comfortable armchair, le- thick leather, luxurious, soft, cushy seat, put on a pair of headphones, Beautiful-sounding headphones. Put on, I'm not sure what I put on. <laughs> I don't remember the song involved. Probably maybe it was Deep Purple. No, Deep Purple hadn't 
done anything back then. I do not remember the music, but I do remember the experience of listening to the music in this super comfortable armchair. And suddenly I open my eyes and I see the grandmother of the girl that we were staying with standing in the doorway, kind of surprised to see me. I guess they hadn't told her that there was anybody else in the house. And that kind of freaked me out for a bit. But luckily she went away and she didn't bother me any time after that. So my first experience smoking cannabis had a rather roundabout route to get there. And as I mentioned, we had gone, I had gone down there to see Creedence Clearwater Revival in concert. So the next day, my brother was going to the concert as well. Uh, I convinced him to share a joint. That was the second time that I had smoked cannabis. And we went to the Creedence Clearwater Revival concert at the Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver, and I was terribly disappointed. It was like sitting there, you could have sat at home and put the album on the turntable. Uh, all the songs were two minutes and 37 seconds long. John was the focus, as of course, you know, he, he wrote most of the songs, but a, a rather disappointing experience musically in terms of the concert that I went to see, but it was a fabulous experience in terms of my discovering cannabis and realizing this is probably going to change my life. And that just about wraps it up. If, as always, you have something you would like me to talk about or get me get your thoughts to me, info at CannabisPodcast.com is the email address. Always like to hear from you. I still haven't forgotten about the chocolate fondue. We'll probably try to look at that uh, next week. I realized I was spending a lot on cannabis and I needed to take a break. <laughs> So hence the delay between looking at chocolate fondue, but I'm going to try and squeeze that in for next time around. And I am working on setting up an interview for the next episode, I hope, with the folks at Valens, the extraction people, and they're doing some marvelous work and making a name for themselves worldwide. Hopefully we're going to have a chance to have that interview next week. That wraps it up for episode 47 of the Cannabis Podcast. From the cannabis-infused studio, high above the Okanagan Valley... This was the Cannabis Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Yelland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.